I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is The Syllabus, a podcast about campus politics from InsideHigherEd.com and American Jewish University. You should be getting the newsletter of Inside Higher Ed. If you're not, go sign up at InsideHigherEd.com, and you should be taking a free class from the Open Learning Program of American Jewish University. Go to aju.edu slash open. Our guest this week on the syllabus is Jacques Berlinderblau, who in addition to having one of the great names in American higher ed, let's just all say it again, Jacques Berlinderblau. It, it, what does it mean? Where is it from? It's it's just, it's, it's extraordinary. In addition to having one of the great names in higher education is also uh, a bit of a polymath. He is a professor at Georgetown University where he teaches secularism and religion and religion and politics and the relationship between blacks and Jews and the literature of Philip Roth and a whole bunch of other things. He has a semi-regular column at the website of MSNBC. His books include How to Be Secular, A Call to Arms for Religious Freedom, and Thumpin' It, The Use and Abuse of the Bible in Today's Presidential Politics. He's also written the book Campus Confidential, How College Works or doesn't for professors, parents, and students. But what we talked about this week, Jacques and I, was free speech on college campuses. And we really dove into the question of why students protest, how far their rights go in protesting, when universities should crack down, what those crackdowns would look like. And we kind of tried to craft a syllabus for what universities can do moving forward from this fairly difficult moment. I should say that our conversation was recorded before the resignation of Harvard President Claudine Gay. And I'm sure that if we were to have the conversation today, that would be uh, a front and center topic. Please enjoy my conversation with Georgetown professor Jacques Berlinerblau. Good afternoon. Who are you? My name is Jacques Berlinerblau. I'm a professor of Jewish civilization at Georgetown University. And in my public facing work, I write a lot about culture and politics. You've written a lot of columns lately for the website of MSNBC. They have tended to focus on campus climate. And I want to focus in on two recent columns you've written. The first, which I believe came out at the very end of October, I want to say October 31st was about the protests on campuses. Obviously, they had to do with Israel and Gaza in this particular case. But the question I'm going to ask you could actually be applied to protest culture in general. Before going on to say that there should be some limits to what students can say or do, you write, an academic campus can be a protest space. To a certain degree, it should be a protest space, end quote. And I read that, and at first I kind of glossed over and thought, oh, of course a campus should be a protest space. This is what students do. They come and they protest. And then I backed up and I thought, wait a second, why to a certain degree should a campus be a protest space? My workplace isn't a protest space. My family's not a protest space. My poker game with my six good friends is not a protest. No other area of my life would I deem a protest space. And if it were, it would be the rare exception or something would be really broken. Why should college campuses, which of course are not designed in Plato's theory of the forms, they're not handed down in Torah, they're not from Sinai, they're not New Testament, they're not Quran, they're not the US Constitution. They're a modern convention of several hundred years old that didn't used to exist and someday won't exist again. Why should they be protest spaces? Hmm. First of all, my family is a protest space and uh, my <laughs> My tennis doubles group, protest space. So I think all we're right, all right. spaces. You know why I said that? Because I just imagined what type of hermetic, anodyne, vanilla sort of place 
an American university campus would be if we laid down as a hard and fast law. You can't protest anything happening in the real world. We might be a STEM school. Maybe that's what we'd be. We'd be some type of engineering school taken to a very odd upper level. So I think it's super important that we not say this under no circumstances can happen here if this is a pretty reasonable thing. And we're dealing with 18 to 24 year olds after all, right? That's my undergraduate cohort. Then we have the graduate students. Yeah, they're going to protest. So it'd probably be a really bad idea for us to try and shut the lid on their anger and their rage categorically as a rule of entrance to the university. But that's not, wait a second, but that's not what you wrote. You said it should be a protest space. And I think you would agree that chimes with something in the American psyche of the last 50 or 100 years, which says students go off to these campuses and one of the things they do is they explore ideas and sometimes they get angry and they rebel against their father and mother figures, their parent figures, and they protest. And they didn't protest as much in high school, even though there are certainly high schoolers who protest. And they will then enter a world in which they, most of them seldom protest. I feel as if you're setting it up, again, in concert with a, a school of thought in American society as a positive good that for these four or five years, they sometimes skip classes to march about stuff. And I guess I just wonder what's so great about it. I, let me play devil's advocate and say, sometimes it's really disruptive. It's not clear that it often moves the needle toward a better world. It seems performative a lot of the time. Why is it a good thing? Could you read the whole quote, Mark? I mean, I think we've gone off on a very strange tangent, which is great from the get-go, but you're kind of chopping my quote in half. Read the whole thing. Yeah, okay, totally fair enough. Okay. To a certain degree, it, the campus, should be a protest space. But to reduce it primarily to that, which is the impression left by the aforementioned narrative, uh, which is to say universities that have lost control, that have become, since October, just nothing but protest theaters is really bad for students and professors. And it's really bad for public trust in American higher education, which is already not very high. And then I'll skip a little to reclaim the public narrative. University officials need to revisit their policies toward protest and free speech. They must also rethink how they convey their faculty's knowledge to the world at large. Um, So, right. So there is that good. That, yeah. And that kind of changes the tone of the accusation. It can be a protest space. It should be. It will be a protest space, whether Mark and Jacques want it to be or not, by the way. I think that's the most (laughs) important thing. Who tried telling a 20-year-old, you put a lid on it, young man, right? I mean, we don't want to hear that crap. They're just going to say what they're going to say. But what I see happening after October 7th is something I've noticed for a couple, maybe like a decade, that it's being reduced, at least narratively, to nothing but a protest space, right? So when the cameras from CNN or MSNBC come down to a campus, they're looking at protests. They're not looking at all the great things and all the not so great things that are happening on a university campus, right? So that was an article about narratives, right? And the way university presidents had lost control of their optics, right? So what people are seeing on the American college campus is rage, anger. You can't outlaw protest on a college campus, Mark. I mean, and there was no moment in the history, maybe back in Heidelberg in the 17th century, there is no moment in the history of higher education where protests didn't happen, whether people wanted it to happen or not. That's, but that's just- weird. I, I'm not into outlawing it. I'm looking back on it. And there was some in my own college days because I went to Yale, which the graduate students were unionizing and there weren't very good relations. And often there wasn't a contract with the extant unions that were there. And there was a lot of protest around that. And I'm intrigued as I look back on how much of a given we took it to be that college students will protest. 
which by the way, I don't know how much of it there was from say the 20s to the 50s. It certainly ramps up from about 64 on. But regardless, it's just interesting to me that it's become the place where people go to spend four years sometimes protesting. And of course, most students don't, but, but a well, lot We do. agree, right? We don't think it should be the place where, where people go to protest, right? <laughs> okay. um, the difference is Provost Mark would shut that crap down, right? And Provost no. Jacques would be like, I wish it wouldn't happen. That's the difference between the two of us. I mean, I know the beast and the beast is the youth and they change from generation to generation, but they're always going to be protesting something as is their right. I wouldn't want to teach in a university where nobody wanted to protest. That would be kind of a scary communist utopia, which I wouldn't want to live in where everyone, critical thinkers in the morning. And I, I don't know about that. But. I don't know. But then again, you're the guy who says his tennis doubles team is a site of protest. You obviously thrive on this stuff in a way that I don't. But I'm not trying to shut it down. I probably do think that if you skip classes, you fail the homework for that day. I'm, I'm not in favor of all kinds of amnesty. But partly that's because I think that I see the university as a place where adults come together and do stuff and then also sometimes accept the consequences. What always struck me was students who would skip class for protesting and then say, I, I should get to make up the test. And I would think, no, instead of getting your grade inflated A, maybe you'll get a B plus, but you'll say, I did good at my protest. And that's a fair trade that an adult can make. But it's not treating you like an adult to say that the world stops when you go protest. Right. If you're going to engage in civil disobedience, you have to be willing, as a matter of standing up for your convictions, you have to be willing to deal with the consequences of your civil disobedience. I think we might agree that universities are not identifying what those consequences are with clarity and lucidity for their students. So there's just this nonstop drumbeat of protests for some. But if you ask me some questions about my campus and the campuses, I think it's more complicated, as it always is in life. Right. I think that's in the Talmud somewhere. The rabbis of blessed yes, memory. Definitely. Yeah. It's more complicated than that. So we might talk about what's actually happening and what we're seeing, because that first article was about narratives. Right. This is what America is seeing on college campuses. Let's get to that. I do want to ask one more question in which, again, I'm going to quote at length in the article. Do justice to your words. You do, as you point out, then pivot to actually a place of saying they need to shut down a little more than they're shutting down. And again, I'll quote from what you're saying, advice to college administrations is to think seriously about regulating campus rhetoric that celebrates or glorifies violence. And you talk about students at George Washington projecting the words glory to our martyrs from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. And you point out they might not have meant it genocidally or, or as eliminationist rhetoric, but you say we're a pro-Israel student to march around with a placard advocating turning Gaza into a parking lot. A similar line would be crossed. And you then say, it's time for college presidents to articulate clearly where they draw the line between free speech and speech that immobilizes and degrades their institutional mission. There are lots of things you can't say on college campuses. You point out, quote, whatever infrastructure presently exists to regulate offensive or dangerous speech, whether it comes from the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Office, a Title IX supervisor, or even a Student Honor Council, should be deployed, end quote. Now here, you move, I would say, to the, to the right of me culturally. I'm much more libertarian, I think, about free speech. You're saying they actually want to go and expel students, discipline students, put students on notice about certain kinds of speech that are not personally threatening to an individual, I'm going to punch you in the face, but are kind of general in a way that I might allow. So how would you have them handle that? So I think I got at this problem in the most recent piece, which I hope we discuss about the, the ill-fated congressional hearing with the three presidents, right? So I think part of the confusion in these conversations is we're speaking about two different speech standards. 
And each one we could have a fascinating discussion about, right? So standard A is what is happening in the United States courts, right? And that is very complicated and there's a lot of exegesis on that. And standard A, according to standard A, you can say, I'd like to commit a genocide against the Jews. And it's probably constitutionally protected. You can't say, I'd like to commit a genocide and take down that son of a gun, Manny Bernstein. From the moment you say, I'm going to commit a genocide against the Jews and take down Manny Bernstein, you've crossed the line from a constitutional, or at least how we understand the constitution. Now, here's the rub. There are a second set of codes as that we live by on American college campuses. They come from the DEI office, right? They come from the Student Honor Council, the Title VI, the Title IX folks, right? They come from consensus. And Mm -hmm. the presidents were toggling between these two standards. I think we should discuss each standard in kind. Are we living by the constitutional standard as it is currently understood? Yeah. By something much more subtle. What we do on a college campus, it's not quite free speech. It's expert speech. That's what presidents have to defend, right? A college campus is a place where people are credentialed, they train, they receive doctorates, they are certified by their universities. Some of them still get tenure. The job of a college president is to defend the speech of those professors so that they can convey their knowledge to their students. So what is happening in constitutional space is one circle, and what is happening on my ideal college campus is another circle. And sure, there's a place where they overlap. But if we're thinking about free speech in terms of college controversies, solely in terms of these godforsaken chants and people ripping down posters, we've lost the narrative. The optics are off. Uh, Okay. I agree with you. How does a university get it back? How do they get the narrative back? We're not just here for free speech. We're here for expert speech. It's, it depends if it's a private or public university. If it's a it, public university. They don't have as many tools because they're an arm of the state and the state ha- is, much, exactly. is much more bound to notions of free speech absolutism. So let's talk right. about private schools. Let's talk about your Dartmouth, your MIT, your Franklin Marshall, your Georgetown. Right. And as we both know, the problem there is they might be receiving federal monies for all sorts of things. So they have to worry sure. a little bit about, okay. But my ideal view is, I don't know, there's something like 3,500 institutes of higher education in the United States. I have no problem with a school, much in the way Georgetown says it's a Jesuit university, saying we live by Jesuit ideals. Many colleges, I'd imagine Bryn Mawr, Oberlin, Vassar, have their traditions, customs, and mores. They have ways of speaking. And when you go to teach there or become a student there or a graduate student, assuming they have graduate programs, you recognize this before you go on in. You're like, all right, I, I can't say these words there, right? I can't engage. I can't be a libertarian bro on this campus, right? So I feel campuses have the right. I've lived it my entire life, right? Yeshiva University has the right to say, no, we, we don't want you talking about that here. The Syllabus is a production of American Jewish University with InsideHigherEd.com. If you like this episode, forward it to one person who you think would also enjoy it. Help us get the word out. And if you have ideas for guests or thoughts or comments, write to me at mark.oppenheimer at aju.edu. Okay, so you're saying that actually they shouldn't all, they should drop the pretense if there ever was one, that what they exist for is free speech, that they are, that the mission, that the raison d'etre is free speechism. And they should say, we are actually a 
curated place that is creating a culture that like free speech is your local town square. I can go into the New Haven Green and say whatever I want. And again, as, lo as long as I'm not following someone and screaming in their face or making specific threats about them, if I'm standing by myself on a stump and saying stuff, no one can stop me. But that's not the speech culture of Georgetown or Franklin and Marshall or Bryn Mawr, that they're curating something different. And cross-pollinate yes. that with this idea of expert speech. So what upsets me about all the protesting, right? Leave aside my political views. It's making it really hard for people to learn, right? People can't be students, right? If their friends are guilting them on social media for not liking this post or that post or sharing, and I'm hearing these stories a lot, right? People that just want to stay outside of the fray, people that don't even know what's going on are being told, pick a side, man. And if they don't pick a side... Their social life, like cascading dominoes, starts to, to veer off into another direction. Yeah. So my interest is, let us as professors do what we're supposed to do, Mr. or Mrs. College President. Presumably is to learn. Is to learn, but hold it, right? I'm not in STEM, right? I'm in the humanities. I say a lot of controversial things in my classroom. I really want my president devoting his or her energy to defending my right to do that, because that's what's so unique about a university. You have people, we call them experts, who say things that a lot of people don't like. Where all the energy of college administrations is going is towards regulating, policing, permitting, or not allowing these hey-ho, hey-chance, and all these other things, right? So when I say we've lost the narrative, we've lost control of our own vessel. Whatever happened to the professorial experts, which is something that very few people are speaking about. I mean, we have all these professors in political science. We have all these people that study economics of the Middle East. Oh, I mean, but students don't respect that at all. I mean, there's, a, there's an ageism that? at work. Wait, that's a super, you're right. You're correct. Right? I mean, part of it's ageism. Part of it is a kind of fashionable anti-institutionalism. I once asked an undergrad I was teaching, who was very cynical about the stuff I was teaching him. Nice guy but seemed to think I was always pulling one over on him. And I was teaching creative writing. It was not a highly ideologically charged class. We had coffee one day and I said to him, if you think that your teachers have so little to teach you, I said, if you think so little of us, why are you paying so much to, to study with us? And it took him aback. And he said, well, I guess I couldn't figure out what else to do with the next four years. I caved to social pressure. I went to college. I'm uncreative. He kind of owned it. But he was very typical in some ways of the, this moment, not the 90s when we revered our, we couldn't believe how great our professors were. We thought they walked on water. It was a weird time, which wasn't the 60s. I mean, these things go in cycles. But I, yeah, there's been a decline in the respect for expertise in all sorts of ways. In the 60s, you had your gurus, though. You had your teaching masters, right? You had your people, the true like Marcuse, you had over at Brandeis, right, where you had professors that just got these huge audiences to... All right, that moment, we don't have that moment anymore. And I'm going to give you three reasons why, all right? One is social media has changed everything. Gen Z, I love them. I love every generation. I'm not one of these professors that's always ranking on the youth, right? I've taught millennials. I've taught Gen Z. I'm early Gen X. I taught late Gen X. I love them all. That's my job. And even if I didn't, it doesn't matter, right? That's not my, I'm not paid to dislike youth, right? Though that sounds very strange. So the thing is this, right? They're coming into classroom. They're very different. They're getting most of their information and their knowledge, right? From TikTok and from Instagram and from Google. This is a really unusual learning environment. Problem number one, all right? Problem number two, university administrations have given up on undergraduate teaching. The resources are not going to get getting the finest experts in front of the undergraduates, right? The finest experts 
are being placed in front of the graduate students. And this is creating a tremendous, I'd say a malaise in classes where a lot of students are like, this person isn't particularly passionate about this subject, nor is he particularly knowledgeable, which is an awful thing for an undergraduate to say. But there has been a collapse in the standard of American undergraduate teaching. And now here's our blame, right? As I told you, I come from very confrontational spaces. In my space, I argue with myself. I protest myself. We as professors really messed up. We also lost control of the vessel, I would say, in the aughts. And we stopped seeing undergraduate teaching as the vocation and the mission and the sacred calling that it actually is. Many of us prefer to teach graduate students, and many of us prefer not to teach at all. Doesn't mean that we don't. We do because we're forced to. But I have a very hard time thinking of this profile amongst American scholars, leading scholar in their field, and somebody absolutely committed to conveying that knowledge to undergraduates. Ah, let me throw this at you. You know who does it more than not, or you know who's disproportionately likely to be that person, leading scholar who loves teaching undergraduates and conveying knowledge? Conservative professors. Yes, I'm with you on that. And I am not a conservative. I mean, yes. Harvey Mansfield, Robert George, Donald Kagan, when he taught, all passionately devoted teachers. And part of it is because they have a zeal for, and they also feel we're the only ones here. If they don't hear, if the kids don't hear from us, they'll never hear it. But it is amazing to me how often the most popular professor is the heterodox one or the conservative one or, and, my, and maybe by the way, is the liberal one at the conservative college. It'd be interesting mm -hmm. if it's the liberal at Hillsdale or wherever, but it's the person who, it's the professor who stands out for being, you know, somewhat contrary, I think. Yep. One thing, though, those fine scholars and teachers, and hats off to them, they're teaching at these resplendent institutions. Yes. They're not teaching at community colleges, right? And the ethic that I'm trying to advocate is not like, it doesn't matter. Just give me 25 18 to 24-year-olds and I'm going to teach them, and it doesn't matter right. where. And that's very difficult teaching when you're not doing this at Harvard or Yale or Georgetown. So I'd love to see a generation of scholars think about getting tenure and getting tenure because they live at the intersection of doing this really cutting edge research and then immediately conveying it to undergraduates. Wow. Okay. You've diagnosed this problem, which is that the schools are known in the narrative, not without reason, more for the protests going on than for the learning going on right now. And you're saying there's several reasons for this. What are two or three cures? And let me put it this way. What can administrators do? Because culture change is really hard. And your columns really do aim themselves, I think, at administrative mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to ask, okay, so you're the provost at Georgetown or Franklin or Marshall or Dartmouth or Harvard, or pick a school that's racked by protests, maybe, to make it a, a good example. What could you do tomorrow? I hear this complaint a lot from faculty that I'm the leading expert in X, Y, and Z, and the administration hasn't asked me one time to speak about this issue, even though it's a front page news, right? So I think in upper administrators have to do a much better job of identifying who their talent is. Here's a kind of campus novel fact. Often the people <laughs> that have the really good knowledge in an academic community are the most difficult for the administrators to continents. They can't stand those sons of God, right? In other words, that person that can actually do this, that actually knows this stuff, wants nothing to do with the administration and vice versa, right? So what are administrations going to do? They're going to have to create teams of talent, whether they like these people or not. 
they're going to have to recruit the five or eight people. Let's get, go to the Middle East, right? Every university that I know of has a few dozen people who work on this. Create a team, make it ideologically diverse, right? But most importantly, make a chock full of experts. Create some type of teach-in situation, perhaps something by Zoom, something really maybe creative where they each speak for 10 minutes, they respond to one another. I understand at Dartmouth, they were trying something like this. There are examples across the country of professors trying to regain control of this conversation. As I also said in that piece, the one that you cited, this is complicated. What I hate about the protests on a college campus is you're taking an issue which is so incredibly complicated and so filled with really bad actors on all sides, right? And you're just flattening it to a slogan or a poster or, I don't know, or just a song or something like that. And that can happen in the public square. It shouldn't happen in a university. So I'd like to see university administrations be more spry in identifying who they're really talented, researched people. You're also saying something else, which is you're saying that the administrators have to mix it up a little bit more, that they have to do stuff and teach and pull together conversations. They have to be tumblers. They have to be, you know, the person who gets the crowd going a little bit. And they're not. And Tyler Cowen, The Economist, he had a blog post recently where he said, if you watched the presidents of these universities before Congress, you realized that they were chosen because they'd responded to a particular set of incentives presumably about saying the right thing, risk avoidance, legalism. And he said, keep in mind that those incentives are working up and down the chain of academic administration. And that's problematic. It was a short post, but really what he was saying was they weren't chosen for their clarity, for their candor, for their humor, for their wit, for their ability to read the room, the emotional intelligence. They were chosen because they'd been really careful and really successful at not making enemies and at just being a certain kind of somewhat loathsome person or professional figure. And I wonder if you'd agree with me that part of what we have to have the stomach for is university leaders who are like sometimes the funnier person in the room, the crazier person in the room, the risk, the riskier person in the room, that for a moment like this, what doesn't work is a kind of sterility. So you use the term loathsome, right? We need a different type of loathsome, right? Because we read fiction, right? Whoever's going to run a university is probably not going to get there by virtue of their personal graces. I think we both understand that as people who read campus novels, all right? But the type of loathsome we're getting is a person who is in constant contact with the board, constantly speaking to captains of industry, constantly on an airplane fundraising in some boring American city. So they're, they're going to these places that I don't go to, right, to raise money, right? What are they not doing, right? They're not slogging it out in the classroom, right? They're not thinking about what does it mean that we have so many contingent faculty members? right? 70% of our faculty is kind of living underneath the poverty line or hovering. What does that mean for the pursuit, right, of the pedagogical vocation? So yes, we need a different type of loathsome. I think that should be the name of this episode. And Different type of loathsome. In academic presence, it's the same type of loathsome. They're all the same character. In graduate school in sociology, we had a funny line, same script, different ethnic cast, like the same problem, fragile democracies, corruption. It would happen Right, but people would look different, right? What we have with these college, they look a little bit different from one another, right? But they're all fundamentally very similar in their worldview. And yes, this is part of the post October 7th dynamic, right? They don't know on an ethical, intellectual, spiritual level how to deal with this, right? That's not what they were hired yeah. to do. Look, I think we agree actually that universities, and you might go farther on this, can't 
make their only reason for being lots of people saying stuff or chanting stuff loudly. And, and you, you've made a strong case that they have to have some sort of sense of purpose or calling or mission that's different and that will require different speech rules or norms. I mean, are you comfortable with schools as they try to move toward your model, toward Provost Berliner Blau's model, disciplining or expelling some students who run afoul of them? There has to be some stick here. I mean, there have people respond to incentives and there have to be some, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I see it like, yeah, you need to do that. And then this opera is going to begin, right? And this opera of angry students and, and people will post online and then there'll be hunger strikes, right? So I don't know, maybe a university or two needs to go through the opera, but I, I, this is more form than content. Universities have to be very clear about what can and cannot be said. If they want to be all free speech absolutisty and libertarian, then fine. I'm not telling them not to. That's the rule. All right. You can call for a genocide against Matt Bernstein or against anyone, LGBTQ, Asian Americans, Jews, right? If that's the operative rule on campus, that's the operative rule on campus. I feel the problem is we have all these different rules on campus and they are selectively enforced. And this is what came out in the hearing, right? In the most recent piece, as I noted, if anyone called for a genocide against LGBTQ persons, we'd find a law. And I'd be the first person escorting them off campus because I don't like discourse like that. But for the Jews, for some odd reason, the standard did not obtain. And this is what I think roiled people on the center, the right, and probably the center left. But that's what was so maddening about that hearing. So to review, state the free speech principle. Do some work. Every university's got about 15 or 20, as far as I know, people who work on free speech. I work on free speech, right? It's something, everything I do is, as I think about it, is involved with free speech, be it secularism or comedy or literature. So I think about these issues a lot. This is my idea. I'd love to work with two dozen or so other experts on my campus. And we'd be like, okay, the president has empowered us to say, you can't say this. And then the fiction begins which I like. The people protesting it, the angry op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, Mark does another, <laughs> another podcast, right? Then all the fun begins. So let the fun begin. But right now it's like the Wild West out there, right? Nobody knows what can and cannot be said. And everyone is eager to probe the boundaries. And they have this tool called the internet where they can share the results of their experiment. So we're in the worst of all worlds. And my biggest fear is people aren't actually learning as a result of this. <laughs> Jacques Berlerblatt, thank you so much for being on the syllabus. Thank you, Provost Mark. That was fun. Thanks for listening to the syllabus. It's a weekly podcast. It's a production of American Jewish University and Inside Higher Ed. Would you subscribe and rate us? That would be just a swell of you. And if you have comments, please send them to mark.oppenheimer at aju.edu. We love suggestions for future guests. That's something you could send us. And I want to thank our team. It includes editor Jacob Kaufman, producer Alyssa Silva, and also the others, Sherry Hirely, Tessa Grasso, and Amelia Hamill. At Inside Higher Ed, we offer big thanks to Doug Letterman. Join us next time on The Syllabus.